You have reached a phone call from Paul, a literary hub podcast. To hear more, visit lethub.com. Paul Holden Graber's conversation with Juno Diaz. Paul. Hello, is this Juno? This is me. How are you? I am definitely alive. How are you? Good. Everything's good. Just over here doing the usual prepping for classes. What 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 am I catching you in the middle of, or what am I, as it were, interrupting? No, nothing. I'm just grading papers. I'm doing the, you know, the quotidian labors of the professor. You no, know, I remember when I when I was a pretend scholar uh, uh, many many years ago. Um, I was correcting papers next to a friend of mine, and we had a huge bunch of papers to correct. It was when I was teaching at Williams College, really in in, in the prehistory of my life in some sense. And um, this friend of mine looked at me as we were both correcting and said, "You know, with a bit of luck, we can do this for the rest of our lives." <laughs> Do you feel that way sometimes? Um, I don't. I don't think that's my first reaction. I think. Um, I think my my. You know, I, it's, it's sort of. I have two jobs. You know, I have the. Uh, I, I pay Caesar with Caesar, and then I've got my. You know, my real calling. The the kind of gospel of the writing. So, I, I always think that I think in more practical terms with the being a faculty member, you know, and um, I do enjoy very much uh, working with my young people. What What do you enjoy in particular? Because I must say that I, I miss it, but I'm not exactly sure what, and I wonder what you love about it, or at least what you enjoy about it. Well, uh, one part of this, of course, is that uh, I think any of us, you get to a certain age and you realize that... Um, yeah. Young people have an enormous, an enormous reservoir of creative energy and of possibility. And that um, one of the things that happens as we get uh, older is that we cool down. No matter who we are, we cool down. Um, no matter who we are. Yeah, it does not. It's just the law of the universe. I mean, I'm not talking about how you feel. I'm just talking about the reality. Um, yeah, um, no, I... Uh, and I think that there is something very remarkable to be around young people and to be reminded every day of that energy and of that possibility. Um, and that uh, it's easy to take it for granted and it's easy to imagine that uh, you and your cooling state are the baseline. And it's for me, it's also just to honor that because, um, you know, the kind of transformational, that transformative energy that young people have, uh, you know, doesn't always get enough credit. And um, so, you know, for me, part of it is being in that space, um, in that kind of proximity. And then the other thing is just uh, we live in a country that's so fantastically anti-intellectual that uh, you know really doesn't give much respect to uh, critical enterprises and uh, to be 
in a space where, uh, in a space that's unapologetically intellectual, that ties to these great traditions of philosophy, of humanity, of theoretical thinking. And just, for me, it's very sustaining. You, you've used this word a couple of times now, which is the word space. What, what kind of space do you try to emulate or create in, um, in your classes? By, by that I mean obviously not the room, but the, the, the space where this possibility, this infinite possibility you were talking about that younger people have in them, which if it is not fed may be thwarted or may be forgotten, but if it is fed, it is precisely that, infinite, infinite possibility. Where, how, do you, how do you create that space and what is that space? Because I'm so interested in it also in terms of that word you mentioned, which um, strikes me as more resonant than ever, as you know, which is a word, long tradition in America, of anti-intellectualism. There's a couple of approaches, or at least I've, um, I've employed a couple of approaches. Uh, one uh, important preliminary uh, for me is to sketch what I perceive to be the cage in which this society attempts to place us all. Yeah. And on one level, of course, when we're just talking about the, you know, what it means to be a student, what it means to be in a classroom, what it means to be embarking in the sexual intellectual journey, you know, sketching some of the outlines of the cage, of the sort of the gravity that's trying, the social gravity that's trying to keep us from flying. I think that this is very important. The idea that we live in some sort of neutral, frictionless space for learning and for um, intellectual, you know, intellectual pursuits is, I think, uh, counterproductive. And, and market-driven on top of that. Exactly. And that's, that's one of the important, um, you know, one of the important aspects, is remind the students uh, that this is a culture that um, is dogmatically instrumental and that worships at the altar of market logic um, at a kind of a fundamentalist fervor or with a fundamentalist fervor. And that there have been other times and other traditions and other ways of not only viewing uh, the nation, but not only viewing um, education, but also just social relationships. And the sort of obsessive logic of approval that um, saturates, I think, yeah. a lot of youth cultures. Uh, or at least corporate-driven youth cultures. I mean, that's important. And then there's just, you know, the the kind of the what we could describe as the higher gestures, which is something that... Oh, I love that term. God, that makes me dream. The higher gestures say something. I'm sorry I interrupted you, but I had to mark that moment. Well, yeah, no, I mean, by this we mean... Um, well, by this I mean... Uh, something that was pointed out to one of by one of my mentors when uh, we were talking about being a teacher, and that um, it reminded me, it's like, listen, when what do you remember about 
your college classes? What lingers most clearly, you know, in your memory? And he said to me, you know, what I think about what I remember most from my college classes is what is not always what you think it is. Um, a lot of times uh, we walk away from our college classes and 10 years later, we'll be lucky if we can remember one or two of the major points of the material. Yes. But he said, you know, it says to me, you must remember that there's a couple of important, kind of a co- important jobs or labors um, and um, in teaching. He said, the first thing is that you must communicate your enthusiasm for the material. And by enthusiasm, of course, we can take this uh, a step further, communicate our love for the material, our profound engagement with the material, our mobilizing the claims and mobilizing the, the demands um, and the products of the material in our daily life. And, you know, he says that that's something that students will look away from. You, you're serious about literature. You're impassioned about literature. They won't forget this. And the other thing, you know, this, the, uh, this other sort of higher gesture is that you're modeling in the class compassion and ethical behavior. And that these are um, pedagogic streams that run through teaching that um, are over the material, are under the material, are in excess of the material, and yet that um, often these are the lessons which our intellectual mentors uh, leave us with. And so I remind myself that uh, on a daily basis, that, yes, I'm here to provide my students with as, uh, you know, serious and nutritive, nutritious an education as possible, but yeah. that there are other aspects to this journey, that there's other aspects to education. And, um, you know, these are um, elements that I take seriously above and beyond the sort of... Um, you know, the sort of uh, what we call the matricular concerns of the course material. And in a, in a way, you're going, by doing that, you're going against the grain. Um, you, you, you answered my question about the space by, by talking about that, that form of enthusiasm that is obviously not measurable. But as you put it, lingers on. And, you know, I'm reminded, as you know, Gino, I, I suffer from quotomania, so I never can stop quoting. But I, I'm reminded of Emerson's great line that nothing great was ever achieved without enthusiasm. And I think he meant it in kind of the etymological meaning of the word enthusiasm, which comes from literally enteos, being transported by the gods being on one's tiptoes, um, being lightened, enlightened uh, by the Spirit. And that, you know, to transmit that, which in many ways I hope to do each and every time I talk with someone, um, or they talk with me, which is much more important, the exchange, is something we can only aspire to and hope to and model, as you say. 
You know, recently I, I had occasion to welcome Nicholson Baker here, who just wrote this book called The Substitute, where he spent a month out of a year substituting in a in a school for six, seven, eight graders in, I, I think, in, in Maine. And he said something that is not dissimilar from what you just said, which is, it is amazing how much potential there is in 10, 11, 12-year-old kids, but how hard it is to get their attention, which is what you must do. So, I mean, you know, it's depending on who you're thinking of, who you're reading or the kind of um, sort of critical cultures you're immersed with. Uh, you know, we live in a society that um, getting someone's attention, giving attention is incredibly difficult. It really is. And it, in, in a sense, it one might say, not to sound too nostalgic, that paying attention has never been easy. Um, I, I remember, again, Simon Weil said that attention is a form of prayer. It's very hard to get into that immersive state. Um, well, no question. But I, I think now there's, um, you know... More distractions. Directed at us, um, encouraging us to interrupt trains of thought, um, I to love interrupt that. speculation, meditation, deliberation, um, and not towards more speculation, more deliberation, more meditation, but um, towards corporate platforms. So this is uh, the, the ethical aspect of your, as you put it in the beginning, the, your quotidian life is to to basically show the students, I suppose, and we'll, we'll, we'll get to your writing in a second, to show your students that there is another way of really living one's life. It was certainly, and that, you know, that to live in this culture, um, to live in a cultural moment such as ours requires um, not just critical thinking, but critical activity. Right. Uh, right. There's, without critical activity, um, what is left of us but to be, you know, um, just sort of uh, passive and, uh, you know, basically subjects that are acted upon. Um, and I don't think that's a great way to live one's life, you know, and it's certainly not a, it's not the, the kind of muscles you want uh, young people to um, exercise overly. No, there's plenty, in, in a sense, as you were saying, as we age, there's plenty of time to do that later, um, if one, you know, wants to do that at all. But certainly when one is young, one has a reservoir, as it were, of, of, of potential creativity in so many different directions. And of course not only the humanities, though, uh, goodness me, I, I couldn't agree with you, with you more. Speaking of that, uh, a last query I have. What, what are you preparing to teach this week? Uh, this week is uh, Handmaid's Tale 
Margaret right. Atwood, yes. and the critical the critical dystopia uh, off of Tom Doylan's uh, sort of schemata. And this is a class you've taught before. This is a new class. A new class. class though it's, no, but it's a class with a, 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 a familiar subject for me, which is um, I'm very much interested in uh, the apocalyptic and post-apocalyptic uh, narratives. And so this is a class on apocalyptic storytelling um, across narrative media. And, uh, you know, end of the world. No, let's say. <laughs> yeah. Eschatological. Yes, um, I, I understand what you're saying now. Um, you know, you you're known to be um, a slow writer. That is true. Um, and I I recall Susan Sontag once saying. I like the sn- slowness of writing by hand. And it, it struck me that there's something in the slowness that may be connected now in my mind with not just a deliberate slowness, but also uh, not just a, a, um, a slowness that comes from the fact that you write slowly, but that it's deliberate in some way because you want to you want to spend time being attentive. Part of it, perhaps. I think part of it is just straight-up sloth. <laughs> part of it is just uh, bad habits. But there's a part of it that um, I, I think is uh, an attempt at uh, a different sort of set of or a different kind of methodology. Uh, I, I, I do or I have noticed that what matters to me is to reflect very, very long on what I might call my materials or very, very long on what I might call um, um, the sources of inspiration. I always think of my writing, or lately I've been thinking of my writing, is that uh, what interests me more than anything is grinding these slow lenses. And what I mean is that giving... Goodness, yeah. Giving events, giving history, giving people the time to unfold, the time to mean, um, to, you know, to give forth their meaning, the time to mean. Uh, we're, we are in a culture that has been accelerated uh, in ways that I think would have been unimaginable to my grandfather and to his father, and that, you know, our rush to judge, our rush to evaluate, our judge to frame, our judge to contain um, inside of our kind of critical, intellectual, political, social, theological schemata. Um, you know, this impulse uh, doesn't always help when you're trying to understand, um, you know, you're trying to understand in a, what I would argue, a much more nuanced way or in a, a kind of what I would say just a more realistic way. You know, realistically, when we're thinking realistically, a snap judgment isn't much help to anyone. Well, it is exactly... I think I often spend a lot of time grinding out these slow lenses, taking a very long, long look at material, waiting for it to speak to me um, more than uh, me speaking back to it. 
It's a, you know, it's a, it's a form of not only slow writing, but slow reading and persistent reading. Um, and there's three figures, since you were mentioning a little bit earlier, um, the fundamentalist fervor, two Fs, two very strong Fs there. There's three writers who have come to mind when I was thinking about you in the last few days that I want to mention to you with, with little quotations that might you know, quotations for me are like signposts. They are, they are ways in which we might react to a given situation in our life at a certain moment when we hear it. And those three writers are all B writers, Borges, Baldwin, and Bradbury. And I'll start with Baldwin, because in a way it's, I think, very germane to the conversation we've have had so far. He, he says, you think your pain and your heartbreak are unprecedented in the history of the world, but then you read. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's one of his great um, insights, especially for those of us who love books. Yeah, um, I think that uh, you know, for uh, for this line, and not only necessary for Baldwin. Um, it actually speaks to um, books as instruments and mediums of sympathies. Yeah, 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 yeah that's, it, yeah. It, and, and it's not necessarily so for everyone, because I would argue, for example, I have a, um, I have an aunt who we would simply argue um, that you can run that line, you know, just repeat that line instead of saying finishing with read simply put the word connect where yeah for her um the realization from my aunt from what i understand my aunt's life from my aunt the realization that she is in the greatest company in the world that she shares a common destiny with everyone in the planet which is that we are vulnerable, which is that we are fragile, which is that we suffer, and yet despite this, that life is this wondrous gift, uh, my aunt discovered this true connection through contact. Uh, many of us, of course, um, especially those of us who are bookish by nature and who prize the gifts of books, um, reading has a way of channeling this wisdom almost directly into our souls. And, and in a, I mean, it's, it's a magnificent reading of this small quotation, which obviously is a very famous line by, by Baldwin, but what I hear you saying also is that for your aunt, as for you, and indeed as for me, be it books or be it connections, is a way of knowing not only that we're not the first to feel that, but we're not alone. Yeah, we're in solidarity. And right. it, it, it doesn't just, it's, it's not just a link um, to others. It's, you know, often our pain encourages us to isolate ourselves. But the truth of it is that our pain is a badge for how we are members of this 
larger community. Um, and that in recognizing this, in recognizing our shared humanity, um, this is not, you know, that recognition of our shared humanity is not a small insight. It's not a small insight. The ego pushes us towards individual, pushes us towards fantasies of achievement, of power, of success, and all of those things pull us away from our common link, our common clay. Yeah, and that is the truth of it. We are made of a common clay, and among the most uh, prevalent minerals in that clay <laughs> is our fragility. Yeah, our frailty, our vulnerability, our possibility to to feel if we if we let ourselves feel the pain. Most certainly. The the other bee, there are two more bees, is a, a bee that matters to you greatly, I think, um, partly in probably in preparing your class for later on this week, is um, Bradbury. And of Bradbury, there's so many things one could say, and I know that he, he matters to you greatly, and you might tell us a little bit about it. But there's one line of his, which I'm sure you know, um, which, of course, is important to me, given where, where I work and what I do, where he says, and it, it in a way echoes um, with Baldwin, he said, I discovered me in the library. I went to find me in the library. Again, um, uh, these are the the scriptures of the bibliophile. Um, <laughs> they, they are. <laughs> you, this, is, uh, yeah. this is. These are known to me. Um, they are of great meaning to me. Um, it's you know the 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 sacred scrolls of my book loving self have these commandments burned into them. Um, and I, I feel um, great connection to that. Um, again, um, when one thinks of the gifts that any single book gives, when one thinks of the gifts contained in reading, and then one recognizes this extraordinary institution, a library, a free public library that contains these bounties within them and this idealistic, astonishing, egalitarian um, set of practices, um, a library open to all, um, where the free circulation of books and all the gifts they contain uh, it's really like the, you know, when we talk about banquets and when we talk about this sort of utopian promise of food for all, for all time, uh, this is what the library, this is what libraries for me prefigure. Um, they are a banquet for all. And, um, you know, a banquet clearly of the mind. And for someone like me, and perhaps like someone like 
uh, Bradbury for a banquet uh, for the soul. Right, a congregation of ideas, a, a, you know, in, in a way, the collective agitation of the mind. Yeah, and that, you know, this idea that one discovers, that one comes up fed by these ideas, that one coheres, that one comes to be having been nurtured um, by these, you know, meats, by these fruits, by these grains. Uh, that's not a small, small thing, especially for those of us who grew up devout, right, in the church of the book. Um, I myself am very devout towards the book. Uh, if I have any kind of religiosity, it's, you know, this utopian faith I have in the book and in reading. Um, I, you know, and I, I feel the same way. I just, you know, I... I came up pre-internet. I came up with a family that had almost nothing. I came up with, you know, uh, books as artifacts, as things that folks owned uh, were non-existent or barely present in my family and in my life. And, you know, the the internet, uh, you know, the internet uh, that folks love and sort of obsess over. That was my library. The social media. Uh, that folks are all up in. That was my. That was the library for me. The library kind of was um, everything that I lacked and that I would eventually end up acquiring. It was a passport. You know, it was a map of the world. It was, uh, you know, um, uh, really just a gift of horizons. And when you're young, man, you really need as many horizons as possible. The horizons of home are rarely ever enough. So, yeah, yeah, no, I, I, I again, Bradbury, someone uh, of fundamental importance to me, but that statement in itself, uh, I always think of that line about, you know, his vision of his identity in the context of library. I feel that, um, you know, if you looked at my artistic DNA, you would find it written in the amino acids of that sentiment. And, and the fact that in it, what he's saying quite profoundly is that um, if there is such a thing as a true self, it is through this banquet, this feast, this nurturing, that you might, just might happen upon it. Yeah, and that's uh, certainly for him. And I think that's that's what matters most, right? Is that um, uh, all of us draw upon, uh, you know, all of us draw upon different foods, sources. Yeah, yeah, different sources, and uh, uh, we gain our sustenance from a, a great variety of, um, you know, a great variety of uh, of uh, sustenances. So. Well, you know, this phone call uh, up to this moment has given me both hope and and sustenance. I, I feel, you know, there is um, there is a sense in which, as you put it, these utopian ideas, if one holds on to them, will continue to nourish us and will continue to nourish other people who will feel that it is exciting to be in the presence of ideas. You know, that there is a a certain passion that that is pleasurable through the interaction with them. On a very different note, you know, um, 
a quotation from Borges which spoke to me very deeply in connection to you. Um, not maybe the most known uh, quotation of his, but one that in reading it made me think, I think Junot will have something to say to this. And he said, I don't want to die in a language I can't understand. <laughs> yeah, a, that is a very interesting one. Isn't yeah. it? <laughs> I and I, I, uh, I'm, I understand that from a number. I guess for me, I understand that in a number of different directions. Um, I think that. I think for many immigrants, that's not an option. That might be an aspiration. And that might be a desire, part of one's last will and testament. But it's not always an option. Yeah, and um, for me, the irony is that uh, at any given point in my life, when I was an immigrant, uh, when I, you know, when I was going through my immigrant process, you know. Um, uh, you know, um, I don't think one stops being an immigrant. I certainly have not. But when I was going through my acquisition of English, uh, if something terrible had happened to me, I certainly would have died in in a language that I did not understand. Um, yeah, I think I have a greater tolerance for unintelligibility, um, but also I think that um, I, as a, an immigrant with kind of fraught and troubled relationships with the language which he was raised in and the language which, he, which, which I later acquired. I, I, I don't know, a part of me is, I, I think that I, I, I'm sort of more comfortable around not understanding. Um, or maybe that's just what I've had to become. You know, I, I visit, um, I have family in Japan. They mean a lot to me. I try to go visit them and my goddaughter over in Tokyo at least once a year. And, you know, I spend an enormous amount, a lot of time in an environment where I don't understand a word of what anyone's saying. Inside the family, outside the family, my goddaughter speaks very little English, and I spend a lot of time with her, connecting with her, and talk as well as we can. And, you know, I, I, I think one of the great gifts for that experience for her is that she's become very, very patient at being in a world where somebody, you don't understand someone and that person doesn't understand you. And um, while I believe, you know, being able to communicate fully is, you know, it's, it's essential, it's of great importance, I've also gotten this, I don't know, I wouldn't say tolerance, but maybe just, um, uh, just experience with being in that kind of, uh, situation where unintelligibility is the baseline, and that while language is really great, and you know, it's what the axis of my artistic practice, I also know that you know, human beings have many, many ways to communicate themselves yes. and many ways to connect. And part of me, I think, is, um, you know, is, is sort of recreating those years when I didn't have English, and I was trying to come the terms with this country that I've found myself in and was trying to cur come to terms with, well, what does personhood mean when you cannot 
be easily understood? What does it mean to sort of be a self in that context, in that situation? And I guess for me that was a that was a, something that bedeviled me for many, many years. And uh, I, I find myself returning to that state again and again. You know, um, I was reminded of that, that quotation by, by Borges also because I remembered uh, the epigraph of Drown and the, the Gustavo Perez Firmat um, epigraph you have at the beginning of Drown where, where he states the fact that I am writing to you in English already falsifies what I wanted to tell you my subject, how to explain to you that I don't belong to English, though I belong nowhere else. Yeah, uh, so certainly a first, that was a first stab at getting at, you know, what, what is going on with me, what is my ambivalence around languages and around fluency. Uh, I think this, again, this, this sort of quote-unquote deficit that troubled me for so many years. I think I, I've ended up realizing that I am at home there as I am at home anywhere, too. I guess I couldn't entirely abandon that, that part of me that lived so many years in those silences. Yeah, and uh, I guess I, I just, uh, you know, I think I guess I, I still have a, a good relationship with that part of me. It took a while. Yeah. That relationship with with uh, ambivalence and fluidity, and just again being in a space where no one understands me, or I don't understand and anyone. them. Yeah, um, you know, would you would you maybe be able to to relish us with a reading? Yes. Now the book was right here. I figure since we're taping this. There'll be some editing, yeah? So, uh-huh. All righty. Uh, just give me a second. No, please, please. Okay. And I had it all picked out, and where is this? Oh, here we go. Um, yeah, so I um, I have a there's a, a writer, um, a poet, uh, uh, Aricelis Hermai. Um, she's got uh, a number of books. I think of her as one of the most extraordinary um, poets. Uh, her collection, um, Kingdom Animalia, uh, had a, just a really powerful impact on me. Um, anyway, she has a new book out um, called The Black Maria, and there's a poem of hers that uh, I really love, uh, and the whole book is, is just extraordinary. Um, and uh, here we have... Um, uh, a poem that she headlines with, Black, full of language. 
what I know about water, the sea, the river, the faucet, the moon, waking us in the night, voyeuristic in the confusion of sleep, what is that saying? About what I know about, the beckoning of all that blue muscle, a kind of beast pawing at the bluff. It is always carrying some other else almost here. We live with it taunts and improvisations. So, sees a queen, ours, killing us in lullaby. After where and how much, see was the other word I knew. But now my ear is black and full of her language. Yeah, a lot of, you know, wow. on the page, a lot of play. It's just, she's just amazing, man. And again, I'm an island boy, so I'm a sucker for any of these Odyssean-like verses. Yeah, it's really extraordinary, and I know it not at all. I will have to. I will have to read her work, and it's interesting because I asked you, might you have something to read, and it shows me something that you chose something not of your own but of someone else. Oh well, yeah. I mean, she's she's something else, you know. You know, um, you know. In 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 closing. I asked you yesterday if there was anything on your mind, and you answered in the most extraordinary way. In a way, we've spoken about this, but I'd love you to say a little bit more. You said, as for what's on my mind these days, colon, the experiences that resist language. Yeah. I'm gonna, you know what I'm gonna do? Can I? I want to read something, another small snippet. Oh, please do! I I, I, I love the fact that 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 to to my question, you want to read another snippet? Do that, please. Then I'll, and then I'll address it. This is um, please do. This is again from this is this is Ariseli Termai from the her latest collection of poetry, the Black Maria, and this is a section of a larger poem. Um, it goes like this. Um, four, what verbs will I use to describe the living of my beloveds? Beloveds, if I love, what language will I love you in? B, what language will I use to see? And if I love and if I see you, then strike law- lines across the terrible verbs. Right. Love, study, make, disturb. Wow. What, what language will I love you in? Yeah. I, I think that's... Yeah, I think that's... <laughs> you, could, you could write that out, put it on it, put it, uh, hang it over my head for the rest of my life, and it would make, I mean, make a lot of sense. and make a lot of sense of me, for certain. And then, so, yeah, no, I've been... Uh, I've been grappling with, uh, you know, the, either the limitations, uh, my own limitations as a storyteller, but also the kind of limitations um, of language just in general to get at some of our uh, sort of most intimate and perhaps difficult uh, experiences or what it are, you know, the kind of 
our condition as human beings. You know, I've been I've been thinking a lot about uh, my older sister. My older sister, she passed a few years ago. Yeah. Um, she was only 48 when she passed. Um, uh, very, very young, and um, had a very she, you know she had a difficult life. Uh, just uh, enormously challenging life, and uh, you know a lot of her experiences, um, and um, you know my relationship with her, I've always found difficult to to write about, to write around, to write through. In fact, um, you know, I, I've, I, I, in my own work, I've left a lot of my sisters uh, out of my work. And I think, you know, my sister's death sort of, in many ways, foregrounded how, you know, brutal experiences like the ones that she underwent, um, difficult traumas, like the difficult trauma she experienced, uh, resist language. They resist our ability to tell stories about them because, you know, traditionally stories are ways that we make sense of the world. They're ways that, you know, and that Joan Didion acts them. You know, the idea of stories are what we tell ourselves, you know. Yeah. Uh, we tell ourselves stories to live. Um, but I think that there's also one of the stories that, we, that death tells us. What are the stories that the dead tell us? And, you know, that's not a language that's easy to crack. It's a, it's a language that I'm trying to master, that I'm trying to, you know, uh, become sensitive to the nuances, sensitive to the phonemes, but uh, it has been resisting me. Yeah, trying to put this stuff to the page. And it's so interesting to say, you know, trying to master that which in a way makes you feel mute. Um, where it's so difficult to come up with words that in any way um, translate the loss. Yeah, no, most certainly. And then, you know, because that loss is actually is an echo of other losses, you know, or it's the final... You know, the final blast, the final note, you know, of a fuller kind of, you know, a kind of fuller opera of loss. And um, I think that that's what I began to discover. You know, at least, you know, I've written a lot, a lot of tough things about a lot of uh, difficult experience, about a lot of suffering. But, man, I realized that, um, you know, sort of a childhood abuse, surviving rape, man, you know, these sort of the perennial horrors of human life that, uh, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a reason why we find it so difficult to speak of these things, whether just at a kind of a, a normal social level, but even for those of us who've experienced these horrors, how difficult it is to to bear witness to them, man. And, um, yeah, I've become, become really kind of surprised at um, uh, the challenges that extreme experiences poses, the challenges that, um, you know, extreme experiences confront a storyteller with. You know, you know, to 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 end our conversation on a on a different note, uh, because I feel. 
to some extent that, that I could continue speaking to you about what you've just said for a very long time, and indeed, many of the things you're talking about um, touch me deeply on a on a on a truly personal level. Um, but to end on a, on a different note, one that struck me um, as as maybe just shifting in our mind completely from what we're saying to something else. You and, and, and Marlon James, I think, share such a, a passion. I mean, not you and Marlon James alone, but such a passion for music. Um, and um, I, I know that when, when Marlon was in, in Jamaica not long ago, um, when when the subject of music came up and the subject of hip hop he he just you know i started to talk to him about my interest in it and my very very inaccurate interest and he um he knows so much and i know that music matters to you so much so i'm i'm wondering um if there's a soundtrack that is going on now while you work and what you're listening to and what you're loving Oh God! Yeah, I'm. I'm actually probably not uh, the the person that is uh, uh, that one should turn to for anything musical. I'm, I'm. I don't think I'm anywhere as knowledgeable or even anywhere as sort of um, musically focused as a lot of people are. To be honest, I mean, I think uh, again, this is not one of my great strengths. But I, I lately I've kind of been pouring over uh, an album by a, um, an MC. His name is Anderson Pack, and he has an album called Malibu, which I've just been completely taken with. It's just a, just a beautiful, brilliant piece of work. Um, just, uh, Anderson Pack's Malibu has really been on super high rotation I'll have to have to listen to that yeah yeah no it's it's something else man something else you know it's it's been a, a a real privilege and pleasure to speak with you and and um I really really loved hearing your voice and and um can't wait to see you it's been much much too long but yeah, um, I hope to return to New York sooner than later, to be honest. I, I really hope so, too. I really hope so. And uh, just to hear the grain of your voice has, has been a, a great source of uh, comfort and, and hope. Well, I appreciate it. Thank you so much, Paul, for uh, choosing to talk to me, man. Oh, I appreciate it. Oh, God, I love it. I love it. Thank you so much, and take care. We'll be in touch. Bye-bye. Yeah.